Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is about Canada's potential to scale up carbon removal. As you may know, I lead a policy initiative called Carbon Removal Canada that released a report on Canada's Readiness to Scale Carbon Removal, or CDR, and the policies needed to unlock its potential. So today, I'll be speaking to two leading experts on carbon removal's future in Canada. Tim Bushman, who co-authored the report and who I have the privilege to work with at Carbon Removal Canada, where he has surveyed the Canadian landscape to understand the carbon removal potential here. And Julio Friedman, a world-renowned expert on carbon removal and related industries, who is kind enough to review the report and has been a huge inspiration to me and so many others in our carbon removal journey. Tim and Julio will talk about the global CDR landscape, trends and developments to watch, Canada's advantages in scaling CDR, the policies currently in place, like an investment tax credit and a carbon management strategy, and the additional policies we will need to succeed in this new industry. I moved back here to start Carbon Removal Canada because I believe this country has all of the ingredients to be a global leader in this space. We just need to build on existing policy momentum so we can capitalize on the opportunity in front of us. That's why we've proposed policies like government procurement to create a strong market demand signal and a CDR innovation challenge to help numerous pilot stage carbon removal projects in Canada get closer to commercial scale. I personally believe that a world that is removing CO2 from the atmosphere at gigaton scale has much better odds of success with Canada as a global leader in this effort. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. My guests today are Dr. Julio Friedman and Tim Bushman. Julio Friedman recently served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Fossil Energy at the Department of Energy, where he is responsible for DOE's R&D program in advanced fossil energy systems, carbon capture and storage, CO2 utilization, and CO2 removal. More recently, he was a Senior Research Scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia, and he has held positions at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, including Chief Energy Technologist. Dr. Friedman is one of the most widely known and authoritative experts in the U.S. on carbon removal, or CDR, CO2 conversion and use, hydrogen, industrial decarbonization, and carbon capture and sequestration. He works with Carbon Direct, which helps organizations turn industry-leading carbon science into action through its end-to-end platform and advisory services. Their team consists of over 40 leading scientific advisors who have collectively published over 1,000 peer-reviewed papers on carbon measurement, management, and removal, and engaged in meaningful climate action from restoration and conservation through to carbon project design and innovative tool development for project monitoring. This scientific foundation is enhanced by a broader team of over 20 carbon market advisors drawing upon finance, consulting, software expertise. Carbon Direct scientific and market-based spans decarbonization frameworks and strategies, emissions tracking, engineered hybrid and nature-based solutions, and cross-cutting issues such as governance and equity in carbon markets. Tim Bushman is the Director of Policy and Research here at Carbon Removal Canada, where he helps to inform policies and regulations to support the rapid and responsible scale of carbon removal in Canada. We are thrilled to have him on the team. Tim has a background in climate science and has worked extensively across the field of carbon management. His research has focused on mitigation strategies for the difficult to abate sectors and carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere. 
Prior to joining our team, he was a senior science analyst at Carbon Direct and a senior analyst at Energy Futures Initiative. Julio, Tim, welcome to the show. It's a treat to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for making the time to speak. I'm really excited about this conversation and talking about the carbon removal potential in Canada. But as we're recording this conversation at the end of 2023, I thought maybe it'd be better to start with a stock take of where the CDR landscape currently is globally and what we're seeing in terms of major industry developments and trends. And maybe I'll, I'll shoot that one over to you, Julio. Interesting that you use the word stock take coming off the end of COP28, where the first ever global stock take occurred. For me, one of the big takeaways of that event and the year, in fact, is that carbon dioxide removal is squarely in the middle of the conversation. This is new. We spent a lot of time at the periphery or in the wilderness. As people get serious about net zero commitments, they realize that Carbon Direct is part of that. And when I say people, it is now in, I think, uh, 17 nationally determined contributions. Carbon dioxide removal is formally part of their commitments. Uh, net zero commitments by companies have come up the curve. And a lot of the discussion at COP28 focused on CO2 removal. There have never been so many events, plenaries, discussions, etc., going on uh, at one time. Ahead uh, of that, uh, we have President Ruto of Kenya, who has said squarely that he believes carbon dioxide removal is part of his nation's future. Let us hope that we see more nations taking up that charge, including Canada. The other thing that I would say that was big this year is that we've begun to see a split in the carbon markets. One way to describe it is that there's a split to a high-risk market and a high-quality market. The high-risk market has dropped quite a bit. It's a 17% drop in what most people think of as conventional offsets. In contrast, the high-quality market has quintupled. We have seen a boom of growth. And a lot of that has been reflected in record-breaking, jaw-dropping deals that we have seen in every pathway. We've seen the biggest ever Bex project. This was the Microsoft Ersted project, followed by purchases from Heirloom, from Carbon Engineering and 1.5, from uh, Climeworks, all of the big CDR projects and companies, and some of the smaller ones, Captura. Uh, uh, we've begun to see projects from Carbon Capture. These uh, many groups now are selling. We've also seen really big deals in the nature-based solution space. Uh, Microsoft's uh, Mompoc purchase is sort of one example of that, a massive reforestation project in Brazil, purchases in enhanced rock weathering, purchases in mineralization, purchases in bio-oil injection, purchases in biochar, every pathway we are seeing activity in the market. Yeah, that's been really encouraging. It's been really great to see all the dynamism in the CDR market this past year uh, relative to previous years. It feels like there's a lot of momentum and just tracking a lot of the um, carbon removals at COP efforts that were underway. It looked like there was also just a lot of discussion around carbon removal at COP. And as you said, Julio, and hopefully we see greater kind of inclusion of carbon removal as a discussion within more of the mainstream conversations around climate uh, broadly. Um, maybe just to zoom in a little bit on Canada, Tim, last month, you know, we released a report that you co-authored called Ready for Removal, and it was about a decisive decade for carbon removal scale-up in Canada. And we discussed two important use cases for, for CDR that we think are important in the Canadian context, though these are true, I think, globally. Addressing residual 
as well as historical emissions. So how should we think about these use cases, and, and what does that role versatility look like? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it's helpful to start with the IPCC definition that describes the three roles for carbon removal. And those three roles include, first, lowering net CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. Second, the need to compensate for residual emissions that are difficult to eliminate from the economy to help fulfill net zero. And third, achieving net negative emissions. And I think about those roles on a time continuum that basically translates into near-term, mid-term, and long-term actions. So in the near-term, it's about lowering net CO2 emissions. Currently, the world is doing about 2 billion tons of carbon removal per year, yet global CO2 emissions dwarf that and are about 41 billion tons per year. That means the carbon removal we're doing right now, um, although important, is only marginally blunting those positive emissions into the atmosphere. So if we have any hope of successfully realizing the second and third roles, then we must rapidly responsibly scale carbon removal over the coming decades while also reducing emissions. And if we don't drastically cut emissions, then any amount of carbon removal that we do will be trivial, relatively speaking. So we have to turn off the tap. That said, we have to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that means pursuing mitigation and carbon removal in tandem. And we simply don't have a choice at this point. We have to do both. In the midterm, it's really about scaling carbon removal to compensate for those residual emissions uh, that will be left over by mid-century to help achieve net zero. We know that there will be some of uh, those leftover emissions and they'll just have to be counterbalanced by durable carbon removal. The net zero math simply doesn't work without it. And it's not just residual emissions from the energy sector that will need to be addressed through carbon removal, but also from factors like industrial processes, agriculture, land use patterns, and forestry, which include emitting sources like cement making, livestock operations, deforestation, and wildfires. So in an ideal sense, the amount of carbon removal that would be needed to achieve net zero would be minimal so that the industry can then deploy its capacity and efforts towards cleaning up historical emissions. And that brings me to that third role. So in the long term, it's really about addressing historical emissions. If the world is to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, society will need to go beyond net zero and remove hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere in total by the end of this century. That is no small task. Functionally, we cannot begin to address historical emissions until we surpass net zero towards sustained net negative emissions on a global scale. And the more successful we are at reducing emissions, the less historical CO2 will need to be removed from the atmosphere. And I think it's really important to note that carbon removal, it is our only means to address historical emissions and could therefore serve as a bit of a risk management tool that really helps to limit temperature overshoot above our globally agreed upon climate targets and also possibly reduce the amount of time that society does spend in a period of overshoot. Yeah, I think it was really helpful in how we kind of were able to frame the potential role for carbon removal, because I think that there's not only kind of a misunderstanding what carbon removal is from just a, a solution perspective, but like what problems are, you know, what are the problems that carbon removal is really trying to solve here? And I think those three, I think, really sum it up quite nicely. And it was helpful to kind of frame the rest of the report on that basis. And then going forward, we had the opportunity to talk about some of the, I guess, economic potential of scaling CDR, that there's not just a climate benefit, but an economic benefit to pursuing uh, this approach. And so working with Navius Research on a, a DAC-only based model, so we know that that's not going to you know, be what the future of ultimately looks like, but we found that building out a CDR sector that's removing hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 from the atmosphere by mid-century could add $140 billion to Canada's GDP and create 90,000 direct and 240,000 indirect jobs. Julio, what do you see as the potential economic benefits of scaling CDR, including in terms that maybe I haven't really mentioned? 
So there's a lot of really straightforward things that can come out of scaling CDR. You've already talked about jobs. I think that is a real one. And uh, with those jobs also comes things like you know tax revenues and th these things. One of the things that people are starting to recognize and understand is that there are, in fact, community benefits and environmental benefits that come from the deployment of CDR as well. That you do, uh, depending on the pathway, you can reduce conventional pollutants, you can reduce wastes, you can improve the quality of air. Uh, all of these things uh, are very real. You can improve water quality. Part of the reason to pursue carbon dioxide removal is to get those ancillary benefits, as they're called. The existence proof of such things needs to be pursued aggressively so that you can document and demonstrate them, but it's definitely part of the mix. Last but not least, I also think that there is a trade export benefit that can come from these things. Part of the reason Carbon Direct is so enthusiastic about CDR is that we believe it will be an enormous global industry. It could very well be the largest undertaking of all human history. If that's the case, then you want to advantage yourself for trade. You want to have technology, you want to have expertise, you want to have services that can come forward. Again, that's part of the sensibility that President Ruto in Kenya is bringing, but um, it is also part of what's behind the bipartisan infrastructure law in the United States. It's part of the way that the EU and countries like Denmark are thinking about CDR. They want to advantage themselves in a world where CDR services are important and where CDR technologies are for sale. Yeah, in an economy like Canada's where export is so critical, we, we definitely want to be making that trade argument even more strongly uh, as we go forward and thinking about the economic benefits of CDR. It's difficult, though, to sometimes envision the scale of CDR that might be necessary for an individual country to achieve net zero uh, by mid-century. You know, Tim, you mentioned residual emissions, and, and we just don't really know what that looks like. What, what feels like hard-to-abate emissions today might not be hard to abate in the future, and, and the opposite is also true. And so what has the literature suggested that scale might look like for Canada and the United States? And maybe I'll start with you, Tim, and then I'd be curious to hear what you think as well, Julio. Yeah, so I would start by just saying that I think considerable uncertainty does exist regarding the amount of residual emissions that could remain by mid-century, um, whether that's Canada, the U.S., or elsewhere, and therefore require the use of carbon removal to achieve net zero. We also lack a clear and uh, sort of accepted industry-wide definition of residual emissions. So that's going to need to change. But I think a helpful analysis on this question was published earlier this year by Holly Jean Buck and colleagues who took a look at the national long-term strategies submitted to the UNFCCC. And they found that residual emissions in Canada were anticipated to be 20% or a fifth of its 2019 emissions level or around 150 million tons. We also kind of did a look at this too at previous modeling studies that Kind of estimated the implicit need for carbon removal in Canada by 2050 to help achieve net zero. And those findings suggested a range between 100 and 300 million tons per year. So these are large and sobering numbers, certainly in the Canadian context. Again, we should also be cautious in our interpretation of them given inherent uncertainties about how technology will progress in the decades forward. And we would expect residual emissions to come down over time just with continued innovation across that sort of RDD and D spectrum. But regardless, we're talking about a domestic carbon removal industry in Canada that must scale to hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 per year over the coming decades. And that's a non-trivial task. And I cannot emphasize this enough, but if we don't begin that journey today in earnest now, we will not have a suite of carbon removal methods and de-risk technologies that are in a position to help address both residual and historical emissions at scale. So near-term actions matter to support this industry. 
Julia, would you add anything to that? First of all, that kind of a number, 20%, that Tim was talking about as Canada's estimated residual emissions, very common number, actually. Uh, more people get into it. There was this idea like you do 90% reductions and then you do 10% removals. Like, ain't wrong. The numbers actually look like the residual emissions are quite a bit larger than that. Second, people are starting to realize that hope is not a plan. Uh, maybe we'll have technologies that can decarbonize the hard-to-abate sectors in the future, but maybe not. Similarly, maybe the world will proceed to rapidly reduce emissions. At this point, emissions are growing up. <laughs> the UN, the IEA have said we're going to see 9% emissions growth this decade. So maybe we need to take more action. As part of that, we've begun to see a pivot from groups like the Science-Based Target Initiatives, groups like DG Klima in the EU, recognizing the need to take early and immediate action on carbon dioxide removal. That uh, it is not an either or, it is not a first and second, it is a yes and. Yes, we must do deep reductions. Yes, we must start profound removals. And that both of those things are components of the work. Let me add, by the way, 20% removals, 20% residual emissions, that makes it bigger than anything. It makes it bigger than the entire transportation sector. Like, we just got to start on that pretty much right away. Yeah, it's such a good point. I don't think that we fully wrapped our heads around the scale that we're talking about. I mean, even if it were something along the lines of closer to, you know, 10%, that's still a very big number. And we are very, very far from that. Uh, and to the extent that, you know, technologies help us with those residual emissions, that just means that CDR capacity that's being used to address historical emissions as, as we try to get past net zero to a net negative world. But ultimately, the, you know, our eyes are on the prize here with net zero by 2050. And it looks like however you slice it, the number's huge. And we're very, very far from the low end or the upper end of whatever those estimates look like right now. So Julio, how do we get to such a massive scale globally? We're talking gigatons here. What steps need to be taken to get there? Right. Well, like any other enormous task, one bite at a time. Um, we know what the work looks like. That's the good news, actually. For nature-based solutions, we know that we can start quickly. We know that there are challenges with, say, durability and additionality and permanence and leakage and all of these other things, but we still know how to start, actually. Red Plus has improved, uh, improved forestry management practice has improved. People are getting serious about baselines. People are starting to get better at dynamic baselining technologies. The satellite technologies are getting better. All of these things give us a way to start, right? Um, and we also know that the price isn't six bucks. We know that the price for nature-based solutions is more like 30 to $50 for quality. So again, we just get going on that. And I will have a specific on that in a moment. For the technology-based pathways, we also know the recipe. We know what to do here. We need to invest in sustained innovation. We need to start creating projects and demands. We need to de-risk for the market. We need to provide clarity around standards and so forth so that private industries can purchase with confidence these sets of things. This gets me to two rather discreet recommendations. One of those is we really need to get government procurement launched. I'm pleased to say that we've seen the beginnings of that. We've begun to see that uh, in, again, nations like Denmark, which are putting money into it for their nationally determined contributions and uh, also for their 
rather ambitious national targets. Governments are providing some of the cost share into that. In the United States, the Department of Energy has created a pilot program, $35 million, where they're going to buy, uh, in this case, the engineered pathways, the durable solutions. That's a very important market signal. That also lays track and, and sets standards that private industry can use. So that is a very discrete thing. Second discrete thing uh, is actually around the standards piece. Um, there, our impression at Carbon Direct is that there are more companies that want to buy. There's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. There's a lot of people who want to jump, but they uh, are daunted by the uncertainty in the market. And providing standards, providing clarity legislatively or in statute will reduce their uncertainty, will boost their confidence and bring more purchases onto the field. All of that makes a lot of sense. And I think we hear about the importance when we talk to uh, carbon removal companies that the power of a demand signal through government procurement could really have, even if it's not a massive demand signal, it could go a really long way. And then to be able to also where certain methods, emerging methods might not be well suited for a government procurement program, the need for innovation investments to get those technologies procurement ready, if you will, so that we can continue to have uh, a diverse portfolio of options available for us. And so the point around government procurement, as well as, as well as the standards that need to be kind of underlying a lot of that work are really, really critical. If I may just quickly on that, yeah. one of the things that we're beginning to see this year is a retreat from the nature versus engineered, a retreat versus trees versus DAC. Like people are starting to realize that there's plenty of room for everybody and that we need all of it. What I call all of all of the above. Similarly, people have begun to be clear and internalize this message that CO2 removals is not a delaying tactic. It is never, ever an excuse for business as usual. It is never, ever an excuse for delay, quite the opposite. And we have a technical finding now that the companies and the countries with the most ambitious target and the largest spends are, in fact, the ones that have been most serious about CO2 removal. And uh, they are adding that because they've already done the numbers, because they've already crunched the math and have discovered that they must do large volumes of removals in order to reach net zero. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when we at Carbon Removal Canada, we typically focus on the long duration methods, but that's mostly because the other nature-based solutions seem to be well covered by others in the ecosystem in which we work, but we absolutely know that we need all of these, or I like the all of all of the above uh, solutions. We also focus on the long duration side, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, Julio, but we are really inspired by kind of the work by uh, Professor Greg Nemet around the need to kind of get started with building out and deploying uh, long duration carbon removal or novel carbon removal, as he calls it, capacity now. Uh, in order to kind of get that to a level of saturation where it can grow to the scale that we need. But given the fact that so many of these technologies, including DAC, are still in this formative stage, that that's where maybe a disproportionate amount of investment is needed in order to kind of build that up. But what's your view on that? Well, I'll be brief. So I'm keen to hear what Tim has to say about this too. Starting to see quite a lot of money coming in. It's not anywhere close to the scale we actually need, but you know, Climeworks raised $680 million this year. Like that's a pretty good amount of money. They have carbon engineering has sold, uh, 400,000 tons. Like there's like, we're starting to really see these, the money coming in. I do think that one of the things that uh, Greg point out correctly is that 
we also don't have the human capital we need to do this yet. Actually, if we're going to build capacity, we need training programs. We need internships, externships, fellowships, curricula, executive training, boot camps. We need all these things to build the human capital. Because if this is going to be this immense industry that we think it will, we don't have the workforce we need to do that. That includes the trades, by the way. We don't have the welders. We don't have the electricians. We don't have the, the full assemblance of people. This in that regard is, again, another benefit that the technology-based CDR can bring is it can bring high-paying jobs uh, and often organized labor jobs. Tim, I went longer than I wanted, but want to hear your thoughts. No, that's great. I would just echo everything that you mentioned, Julio. And yeah, I think the, the general thesis is exactly correct that if, if you don't start now, those supply curves of where we think we need to get to globally, you know, by mid-century and beyond, you're just not going to get there. It almost goes vertical if we don't start now. So, you know, all, all the more important to continue to, you know, just seed and, and build this ecosystem and, you know, hopefully get on that trajectory that we need to, that we need to be on. Yeah. Yeah. Those scale curves get pretty steep. Tim, we often talk about how Canada is well positioned for a leading role in this global industry. You know, our hypothesis is that Canada has all the right ingredients to lead on CDR. What do we mean by that? Yeah, it's a great question. So Canada has a number of strategic advantages that can be leveraged to help scale carbon removal. And I certainly do think, and, and we collectively think that it's going to be a really exciting place to target for project deployment in the future as we build out this global industry. One of those major advantages is simply its natural resource base. So Canada is the second largest country in the world by land area. It has the longest coastline on earth. It has the third largest forest area of any country, and it has vast agricultural lands. This all bodes well for, you know, project deployment across a variety of different carbon methods. Another advantage is clean energy. It has a really big endowment of clean energy, certainly in hydropower and elsewhere. And that can be leveraged for carbon removal purposes. We know that, you know, from a, a life cycle standpoint, this, these projects, these methods have to be serviced through clean power, clean heat. Roughly 82% of its power generation right now is already from non-fossil or non-emitting sources. So Canada may be better positioned than other countries to leverage those clean resources in a manner that supports both mitigation and carbon removal at scale. A third advantage is geologic storage potential. So Canada has a large storage potential. It's estimated between 200 and 700 billion tons of CO2. Most of that is located in saline formations in Saskatchewan and Alberta. So if, in a, if that resource was converted into practical capacity for sequestration, Canada could store many hundreds of years worth of annual CO2 emissions. It's a sizable resource relative to other countries. And I would say a fourth advantage is a skilled workforce. We already touched upon this a bit, but Canada has a highly skilled workforce across a range of sectors that possess the technical know-how to build large infrastructure projects, do big things, scale industries. Our removal companies can tap into those translatable skills uh, from sectors such as oil and gas, mining, forestry, to really help build this at scale. And I would just quickly recognize that there's a growing ecosystem of both suppliers and buyers here in Canada that are ready to capitalize on the carbon removal opportunity. In our Ready for Removal report, we identified around 70 carbon removal companies or other value chain actors in Canada, many of which are ready to begin project deployment. There are also leading corporate purchasers of carbon removal on the demand side, led by folks like Shopify and BMO. So directly, these signs all point to an industry that is ready to develop and scale. Yeah, that's really exciting. It feels like we have a, a unique combination of, of strengths that are working in, in our direction. And I have a hard time imagining how the world kind of effectively gets to gigaton scale without 
a really active role being played by Canadian companies on this really important problem. And I, I think that it's interesting that we talk about the role that uh, Canada can play in scaling carbon removal and that, you know, it has a lot of benefits for Canada, but I think that Canada can also contribute a lot to the global need around CDR through knowledge sharing, through how we can deploy projects and bring that expertise around the world. So Julio, you've talked a little bit about this earlier, but let's double click on it a little bit more. Why should governments take up this issue? Like, why should they care about and support the carbon removal industry? For the same reason that a government would support any other climate action. That, first of all, it is a public benefit. It's a public good. I just came back from Dubai and COP28, and all of the nations in the world actually have ratified and agreed to what is now called the Dubai Consensus, which includes, among other things, a transition away from fossil fuels and specifically an investment in all kinds of technologies. And they mentioned CDR there. So this is now front and center as part of a global climate strategy and a national climate strategy. Second, we've already talked about all the specific benefits that investment in carbon dioxide removal can bring a nation, including jobs, balance of trade, advanced technology, services, a workforce, and all those sorts of things, uh, in addition, the ancillary benefits to communities. So these things are, are real and part of the reason why government should act now. Third, it is just like everything else in looking at climate. They should invest in carbon dioxide removal the same way that they invest in electricity transmission and rooftop solar and EV charging infrastructure. It is the same mix of stuff. Reasonable people disagree about the amount of money, the prioritization, all these sorts of things. But if you're going to take climate seriously, this just looks like one of the many things you do. So... Uh, it is, I think, good policy to specifically say, we will do this in addition to the other things we're doing because it is required. Yeah. And speaking about good policy, what do you see as the most important near-term policy actions to support this sector? Um, you know, what are the most important levers that we can pull this decade to help scale carbon removal? I'll start with you, Julio, but I'd, I'd also want to hear from Tim on this too. Uh, we've mentioned already government procurement. I think that is a hugely important thing, so I won't belabor it, but actually getting that rolling and a clear signal that it will scale will help. It will allow companies to get investment. It'll again help develop standards for procurement that countries and governments and companies will all benefit from. Another important uh, policy action is that there does need to be some kind of set of incentives. In the United States, uh, we have led with many kinds of incentives. The bipartisan infrastructure law has capital for direct air capture projects. It has capital to prove up CO2 storage sites. Uh, these grants for large demonstrations for infrastructure development are really important and an, an important policy signal. In addition to that, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, has clear set incentives for CO2 uh, removal, in this case, the $180 a ton for direct air capture with storage. If you look around the world, though, there's other kinds of policies that also are really good pathways. Uh, Canada has, for example, the investment tax credit for carbon capture. That's a good one. I would look to the EU and their infrastructure funds. Uh, we are starting to see standard setting done by the EU as an important policy pathway. This has gained new urgency following COP28. And 
with uh, the fact that Article 6 did not make really any progress this year, that actually creates an opportunity for groups like the EU to, to set clear policies. Last but not least, uh, we need to continue to find new ways to facilitate cross-border trade around these things. Article 6.2 is a good way to do that. We're seeing nations and countries sort of starting to get into this mix. That level of statescraft and diplomacy is a high one, actually. And one of the policies that countries can pursue is actually engaging other nations in bilateral deals. So Canada, let's say, has an opportunity to reach out to other nations like, say, Japan or Korea and say, hey, we can provide something to you directly. Let's cut a deal. And uh, those policies end up being facilitating policies for all of the deployment that we need. Yeah, that's a great rundown. I mean, we certainly have our work collectively cut out for us. Tim, what would you add to that? Yeah, I mean, I would certainly echo everything that Julio mentioned. I think broadly speaking, we need to stimulate market demand, accelerate supply development, and also create just the enabling frameworks for, you know, rapidly and responsibly scaling this industry. So just to kind of break that down a little bit, I think on the demand side, this means mechanisms like direct government procurement that Julio mentioned, advanced market commitments like Frontier, and really trying to induce that next major wave of corporate buyers in the voluntary market. On the supply side, this means things such as new incentive packages like tax credits for project developers, who we already mentioned ITC, and continue to just always invest in, in sort of research development demonstration and uh, really trying to push innovation forward. Um, we should always be looking to help uh, drive down costs and improve technology performance across the suite of remo removal methods. And I would also mention that just in the Canadian context, we're thinking about an innovation challenge program that would essentially serve as a precursor to a formal government procurement program. Uh, this program would provide government funding for earlier stage car removal projects that are on the order of, you know, maybe thousands to tens of thousands of tons per year in annual removal capacity, and really just start to seed that pipeline of commercial ready innovations and projects to support industry development in Canada. So more information to come, but we're really excited about the concept and that's something that we're actively working on here. We must center all of those efforts around just responsibly scaling up this industry. And I think it's important to kind of unpack that a little bit, but I think that means things like the uh, development of standards and protocols to help set the rules of the road and define what good looks like for project development. It's regulatory frameworks for things like project permitting and liability and much more work uh, that I think needs to be done sort of on the social science components of this industry. So car removal, like climate action more broadly in so many industries, it's as much a social science challenge as it is a natural science challenge. We need much more effort regarding community engagement and project ownership and management models, community benefit provisions, and so on. Sorry, I forgot a really big one. Apologies. Here. Compliance markets. Yeah. Compliance markets. I can't believe I forgot that. So uh, I love the voluntary carbon market. It is small compared to the compliance markets today. The voluntary carbon market is about $2 billion. The compliance market is about $600 billion, right? And we think that this is necessary. That suggests some kind of a mandatory structure is in bounds. Uh, there's lots of ways to structure compliance markets. Canada has a $170 carbon tax. Is engineered CDR a compliance option for some fraction of that, 5% or 10% or something like that? Same thing in Europe. They have a zero carbon electricity standard. Is CO2 removal part of a compliance standard for that? Again, you would want it to be a small fraction, 5% or 10%. But for the really expensive last little bits, having CDR as a compliance option is appropriate. 
Last but not least, something like the Corsia standard uh, for aviation as put forth by the UN uh, ICAO, things like a low carbon fuel standard like you guys got in British Columbia. These are compliance options that are sectoral. And boy, do they jumpstart investment. Do they jumpstart action? If people know that it's mandatory, they will pay whatever price is necessary. That gets the ball rolling. That is exactly how we got renewables started around the world. It was renewable portfolio standards, mandates of all kinds. Compliance markets are an important, critically under-scrutinized tool to get more of this stuff into the market. Julio, that's such a good point. And and we look at, you know, the BC low carbon fuel standard and the work that's happening there and other compliance markets in Canada and around the world as and a really critical pathway for CDR. I'm, I'm glad you reminded us on that one. Um, what challenges keep you up at night regarding the CDR industry getting to scale? And this, this question's for, for both of you. Um, I have many thoughts around this, but what gives you hope that we can overcome these challenges and accomplish our goals in CDR as well as our broader climate goals? I think there's at least three major challenges that worry me to some degree about uh, the scale challenge. I think the first challenge is just doing this responsibly. Um, we're in a unique position as a community to build something new and create you know, positive economic, social, environmental benefits. But we need to do this through sort of a risk management framework and ensure that we're maximizing beneficial outcomes. I think one way to do that and scale responsibly is through robust standards, protocols, and frameworks for measurement, monitoring, reporting, and verification of project outcomes. And in essence, we need to focus on quality before scale. A second challenge is trying to account for just how big the net might be in net zero. Um, I grapple with this question a lot and it does keep me up at night. Um, and I think it's particularly salient when accounting for CO2 emissions from the land sector. So we know that with increasingly negative climate impacts to the biosphere, um, you know, we have to think about how those ecosystems and those CO2 sinks are going to respond to those impacts. So we're going to need to have and plan for sufficient carbon removal capacity to come online to deal with you know, the, the potential for some of those net CO2 sinks that may become sources in the future through things like forest dieback or permafrost thaw. So that will just simply add to the challenge and the scale that we need to accomplish. And the third challenge is around business models and who pays to help get car removal to scale. Think about this a lot too. And, you know, if we're talking about removing hundreds of billions of tons from the atmosphere by the end of this century, that is a big price tag well into the trillions of dollars. So who pays for that? What is the proper role of the public sector versus private sector? What are the revenue streams beyond the sale of carbon credits? How do we mobilize enough capital for carbon removal in addition to the trillions of dollars per year that we already know that we need just for mitigation and reducing emissions? So this is a capital allocation and cost optimization problem that we need to figure out. But all that said, what gives me hope, I think simply put two things, people and innovation. The amount of people and talent that's funneling into climate right now is nothing short of remarkable. And it really, it's, it's exciting. Um, and the innovation that's occurring too, just in technologies, policies, and business models has been thrilling to watch. I, I certainly hold the position that there's no better time to be working in climate than now. It's just a really exciting moment for this space, just given all the innovation that's occurring and the people um, that are really aligning themselves with this type of mission. And the spirit of collaboration also gives me hope. Um, I've just personally, in my journey, found that those in the climate space are just naturally more predisposed to collaboration, just given our shared sense of urgency in tackling this problem. Um, it's a very communal feeling. And if there's ever a time for the world to come together to address a common problem through collaboration, that time is now and that problem is climate change. 
we're all in this together and together we need to find ways to achieve our common goals. Yeah. I'd second that point on, on people, Tim, it's been just refreshing working in this space and, and just seeing how collaborative and how we approach problems in this collective fashion. It's been, uh, it's been kind of what keeps me going for sure. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Julio, over to you. So there's a couple of things that keep me up at night. Uh, you've already heard me talk about a couple of them. Uh, one of them is the workforce. We just, I love the innovators and the people who are in the space now, but we just don't have the workforce we need. Same thing with the infrastructure. Uh, we're going to to get CDR really working. We're going to need more storage sites, more transmission lines, more ports, upgrades. Like we're just going to need a whole bunch of stuff and we don't have it. Uh, it, rather than belabor those points, though, there's two other things that I think uh, keep me up at night, and they're sort of flip sides of the same coin. One of them is the degree of divisiveness that these conversations still have. I really don't understand it. If you can do arithmetic, then you can understand why you need such things. But there is, uh, a, it seems like, an awful lot of anger, distrust, animosity, even just around the topic of CDR, like, should we do it at all? And again, the IPCC is clear about it. The IEA is clear about it. Many groups around the world have made the case. It's not like this is some fringe group. Governments around the world are embracing it. And yet there is still this uh, reflexive anger against it. The fact that it's not rational does not mean that it's not real, does not mean that it's not material. So we need to think about that. The flip side of that is really getting to the gigaton scale this decade getting to the multi-gigaton scale after will require an unparalleled degree of cooperation between groups, not just between nations, which we've talked about, but also between innovators, policymakers, investors, civil society, regulators. We, just, we need a whole set of cooperative actions that don't really exist yet. Carbon removal is a cross-sectoral undertaking. It's not just like adding renewables onto a grid that already exists in a market that already exists. You have to create an awful lot of stuff across sectors, between sectors, to get sustainable biomass harvesting for real, to get uh, wells permitted for real, all these things. And that degree of cooperation is absent at this point. And we need to actively cultivate it in a way we have not done so to date. Yeah, those are all really massive challenges, but also really exciting to be able to take on this, this massive challenge and find a way towards that cooperation that I think you mentioned, Julio, is going to be so necessary. Um, maybe a level of collaboration we see within the carbon removal sector. If we could just see that across the board, it would, it would take us a really long way. Julio, Tim, any closing thoughts? I'll start with you, Tim, and then and close with you, Julio. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, in, in this entire endeavor, uh, regarding addressing the climate crisis. We only fail if we stop trying, and we know that failure is not an option. So let's get moving and let's get trying. I love what Tim just said. We only fail if we don't try. The, the fact is we are going to see projects fail. We're going to see companies fail, and that's part of the journey. Like we know that this is going to happen, but we also know that it is essential. We also know that CO2 removal, whether it's in Canada or anywhere else in the world, is part of the vibrant, thriving world we want to build. We have to keep that vision in front of us because that vision carries people along. It brings new people in. The fact is that this is not your peas, hair shirt, kind of, you got to do less of everything kind of solution. Instead, it's the opposite. We have to 
capitalize on the abundant natural resources we have, the abundant spirit of innovation we have, the opportunities that this whole new industry provides us. That's the thing that gets me up in the morning. And I hope it does the same for your listeners. Well, you both gave me chills. I love that. Tim, Julio, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you, Naeem. It's been a pleasure. 